There is no roadmap for what is happening in the world today, but the more informed you are, the better your chances are for successfully navigating these uncertain times. This is why the registry continues to bring its real estate news coverage to keep you informed and better prepared to meet the challenges of the industry. We can only do this because of generous readers who support our work. Thank you to your commitment to journalism, especially now. And if you're not a subscriber yet, you can join us at the registrysf.com in San Francisco and at the registryps.com in Seattle. Julie Trepa is a partner in San Francisco-based Farella, Braun, and Martel. She's a versatile, highly experienced practitioner with expertise in a broad range of tax-related issues and controversies involving federal, state, and other taxing authorities. Julie's particularly experienced in developing strategies to help investors, developers, businesses, and nonprofit organizations use tax incentives and tax credits to achieve their financial goals. Two areas in which she has special expertise are new markets tax credits and opportunity zones, both of which are designed to induce investments in specified low-income communities. We sit down with Julie to talk about opportunity zones, how they evolved, and what the new normal means for this very important investment asset class. Welcome, Julie. Julie, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Doing well. Thanks. Great. Yeah. Where does this podcast find you in this uh, sort of late summer of uh, 2020? I am currently in Alameda, California, reporting from my home office. <laughs> <laughs> like the rest of the world, probably right. at this point. <laughs> yeah. Julie, well, uh, thank you for uh, for being with us. Um, I wanted you to give us a little bit of an introduction about you, know, you your firm, uh, what you do, uh, uh, just sort of something that we can uh, kick off uh, an interview with. Sure. Um, well, I, I have been practicing as a tax lawyer for about 20 years now. Um, I originally, even before law school, you know, started my first career was in tax with the IRS, uh, went to law school to study tax and um, originally was doing a lot of tax controversy. But as my, you know, career experience, progressed. I, I started doing a lot more planning, um, got a lot more into policy work. Um, I, I work with Opportunity Zone tax incentives, but, you know, really kind of started down that path because I was very interested in new market tax credits, which similar to that program has a policy aspect to it and that it's trying to infuse capital into low-income communities. Um, I went to Ferella uh, about almost three years ago now. Uh, Ferella is a mid-sized firm in San Francisco with offices in Napa Valley. We've got about 120 lawyers, and it's a full-size firm. We represent corporations and private clients um, in a variety of ways. We have several industry groups focused on real estate, um, private client issues. We have a big wine industry, basically what most companies need. You know, we have a lawyer here that sure. can, can represent them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. So today we're going to talk mostly about opportunity zones. That's one area of specialty that, that you mentioned earlier. Um, 
Can you help explain what is an opportunity zone? And and sorry, I'm going kind of you know basic on some of these questions, but I think it'll be just good background for uh, for the audience. So an opportunity zone, uh, the the incentive itself is a program that's like I said designed to infuse capital into low income communities, and so the zone itself is a low income community um, that's generally defined as as census tract that has about a 20% or more poverty rate, or the population has uh, an income that's about 80% of the average statewide or area income. And each state, this is done for for other programs, each state's census tract tracks these things. And when the program came out, the governor of each state was given the ability to designate 25% of the low-income communities within their boundaries as an opportunity zone. So as an area that that governor decided was distressed and could benefit from this program. Okay. Where are most of the opportunity zones located today? Is it it geographical in in certain states more prevalent than in others? How has that spread throughout the country, if you will? It, It is throughout the country. And like I said, each state got to designate 25% of their low-income communities as an opportunity zone. So, so within each state, unfortunately, there is a low-income community, and, and certainly there's going to be more opportunity zones in a state that might have more low-income communities within its boundaries. But it is, it is throughout the United States and actually Puerto Rico that where these zones are located. Right. Are they primarily in urban areas or is it kind of fairly spread out through other, you know, rural areas also? How how does that break down? So it breaks down by census tracts. So you're going to have more census tracts obviously in urban areas. But as far as low-income communities, there certainly are zones in rural areas as well. You know, it is there is going to be a little bit of both. Yeah. And how did how did it come about? Was there any sort of, you know, historical precedent that that kind of set this in motion? Um how, you know, what 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 kind of kicked this initiative off throughout the country? I'm not really sure what originally what the, what, what was behind the original thought for this particular program the way it is now. Um, but there has been various community development programs, you know, throughout the country at, at various times. And, you know, my understanding is, you know, originally this was being looked at at perhaps an alternative to some of the programs we have now. We have, you know, low-income housing yeah. tax incentives. We have new market tax credit incentives. We have ex- historic tax incentives. And so, you know, I think that, you know, when I kind of came into the discussion, it was whether this would overtake those programs or be complementary. And at the end of the day, it is complementary. Those programs still exist. Um, it was enacted as part of tax reform in 2017. And one of the ideas was that there was a lot of capital assets that people were holding on to because they didn't want to recognize the gain and get that tax hit. And so this was one way to give people an incentive to dispose of those assets under circumstances where they wouldn't have to pay the tax, they could defer it. And there would be, you know, investments in these low-income communities. So 
it would provide, you know, this incentive for people to, you know, release this, this wealth that they had and drive it towards something that would benefit the community as a whole. Yeah. And in these communities, what kinds of projects were usually being completed? Commercial, mixed use, residential, all of the above? I think, yeah, I think it was designed to be a program that would benefit people in a variety of ways. So possibly benefit small businesses by providing people an incentive to invest in a small business that perhaps is located in an opportunity zone, um, perhaps create, you know, an incentive to invest in, in housing within an opportunity zone or other kind of real estate projects within an opportunity zone. But like any program that is focused on having a certain amount of activity within the zone, it's naturally drawn to real estate investments. And, and the reason for that is, let's face it, a building cannot move, sure, um, but a small business can. So at the beginning of the program, I had lots of people trying to find a way to use the program for perhaps an incubator or, uh, you know, a, a series of small business investments. And um, originally that proved very difficult. And so I would say the program right now um, has a lot of real estate investments and people are, are working on how we can use the program to help small businesses or startups in low-income communities. But it is, it is a more difficult program to navigate through if you're making those types of investments. Yeah. So 2017 was a big year for this initiative. Uh, tell us what happened in 2017. So the statute was enacted in December of 2017 as part of tax reform. So really kind of took off in 2018. And originally it was quite difficult to participate in the program because all we had at that point was a statute with no regulations. So it had a little bit of, it was stalled a little bit in getting started. And we got some proposed regulations in the fall of 2018 and around that time, I would say, even a little bit before those regulations came out, people kind of had started put together plans of how they might be able to take advantage of that, of the program. But then in May of 2019, more detailed proposed regs came out. And I would say around that time, that's really when the program started coming together, because we had a solid set of proposed regulations that we could rely on and people could feel more comfortable moving forward with in investments. Um, as we get into talking about, you know, what happened with COVID, you'll see there's a lot of very time-driven benchmarks that a fund has to meet in order to comply with the program. Sure. So knowing exactly how those worked was an issue at first when the program came out. And so following that time frame, how was the uptake then across California? Um, yeah, I would say in in about, like I said, when the when the regulations, more detailed proposed regulations came out in May, I think then you really had more of an incentive uh, for funds to go out and raise money. And uh, if you look 
I'm part of a working group that started to actually track how much people had raised. And, you know, although there's certainly funds out there that don't report to this working group, you know, we had determined that by April of 2020, there were funds out there that had raised over 10 billion in their, you know, for their opportunity funds. That doesn't mean they necessarily dispersed that capital to projects. Sure. Right. But, you know, they had, you know, we can track about 10 billion of equity raised and probably throughout the country, there's a lot more than that out there. But definitely the uptick started in about May of 2019. Yeah. And and this 10 billion figure, is this just for California or, or is it Bay Area? How how narrow? Of a... It isn't just California. It's it's this working group is is throughout the country. You know, sounds like 2017 and 2018 were were good for this legislation. 2019, things started to kind of move along. Um, you know, finally, then 2020 hits and COVID hits, um, and then and then what happens? So, like I said, there's uh, a lot of time-driven deadlines with this program. And there became a lot of concerns from parties that, in fact, we weren't going to be able to satisfy these deadlines. So, for example, one of the qualifications of a fund is that 90% of their investments are are made in qualified opportunity zone property, um, which if you're talking about qualified opportunity zone business property, has to be property that's either purchased and used in the zone for the first time by the fund um, or it's property that has been substantially improved. And, and I think a lot of the real estate projects out there are relying on this substantial improvement provision to get their property to be qualified. So that requires that the property's basis be doubled within a 30-month period after the date of purchase. And clearly there was concerns when this first happened about whether or not you could satisfy that 30-month substantial improvement period if there's delays in construction or there's disruptions in the supply chain for construction materials. And so that was causing a lot of concern. In addition, you have investors that have to invest proceeds realized from the disposition of an asset within 180 days, and you're in the middle of a pandemic. You yeah. know, if you are an investor, yeah. are you really going to invest in a distressed community in the middle of a pandemic? It, it might not make economic sense, even if you are going to get a tax benefit out of it. So there was concerns that that would slow down the program. And there was also concerns, and I don't think this one has really been addressed, about what's going to happen with tax rates. The program itself uh, allows you to allows an investor to defer capital gains that they realize until they dispose of their investment in the fund or until December 31st of 2026. Being in a pandemic, especially during an election year, we don't know what's going to happen to tax rates. So... Are people going to defer capital gains that now would be taxed at a 23.8% tax rate until 2026 when perhaps that rate increases? You know, there's a lot of concerns about and and other, you know, more, there's certainly other more detailed concerns at at a more 
granular level, but I think those were kind of some of the larger ones that were in people's minds. And the statute as written provided some relief. Um, It did say that, you know, if you don't meet this 90% investment standard, if you're a fund, um, due to reasonable cause, you don't have to pay a penalty that would otherwise apply. But, you know, most people were thinking, well, reasonable cause would clearly apply in this case, but for how long? And um, there was other relief in the statute that's automatic under circumstances where a federal disaster was declared. But in this case, the president had just declared a federal emergency. Sure. And there was lots of people wondering, well, what, you know, can we rely on that relief right now? So yeah. there was a lot of questions about the status of the program and and what would happen next. Yeah. And it's interesting what, what you just also mentioned is that the, uh, you know, statute, it sounds like the way it's written is also subject to, you know, future changes in terms of, you know, tax law and other regulations. So it's not like, even if you invested at a certain point in time, that necessarily all of those rules would stay in place. Is that is that accurate? Oh, yeah, that's completely accurate. And in fact, that was one of the issues that people were asking for in terms of relief. You know, perhaps you could provide a benefit to this program if you said, for example, with this deferral, that the tax rate of capital gains when you deferred would apply when you ultimately had to pay tax. Yeah. So so not only is there some inherent risk associated with this, but now the pandemic obviously adds additional risk to to the whole venture as well. So so since COVID has hit, there have been some proposals out there. Um, could you kind of give us a sense of you know what what are some of the things out there that are that might be changing kind of what is what is happening? The first thing that happened that was you know somewhat of a benefit was that it became clear. You know, when the president first declared an emergency, the Treasury Department came in and they said, look, if you have any deadline, like most people that are familiar with this, their deadline was filing their tax return. If you have any deadline that falls between um, April 1st and July 15th, that's going to be extended until July 15th. So that was helpful for people who had this 100-day clock ticking. Yeah. but it wasn't that helpful. <laughs> and so the working group that I work with and certainly other interested parties were, you know, talking to Treasury about, you know, what other things could you do to help this program, either in terms of clarifying the existing law or providing additional extensions. And so they issued a notice that said, you know, we're going to do the following things. If your 100-day investment period was going to expire sometime between April 1st, 2020 and the end of 2020, we're going to give you until the end of 2020 to, to meet your requirement that you invest those proceeds within a certain period of time in a qualified opportunity fund. And so that allows people to, you know, get more time to figure out what's happening with the economy. Is this the type of investment that makes sense for them? It also opens up the door for those people that are out there raising money for qualified opportunity funds to reach back all the way until, 
you know, to investors that realized gain as far back as October of 2019 to make an investment. And I think that's very helpful right now to give everybody a time to step back and figure out what's going on with COVID and the economy and, you know, what their investment strategy is going to be. Is there is there any opportunity for that day to change again? I mean, obviously that is some help, but you know it's highly unlikely that by the end of 2020 we will have a lot of resolution in terms of what's happening uh, around the industry uh, in general. So, um, any consideration given to perhaps looking at further extending that? I'm I, certainly that's something for Treasury to decide. Um, I think as as time goes on, uh, that might be something that practitioners are pushing for. Sure. You know, some of the other things that happen, like we were talking about that 30 month substantial improvement period, they basically said, if your deadline on that, um, or I'm sorry, if, if your improvement period in general, that 30 month period at all falls within April of 2020, and the end of 2020, we're gonna, we're gonna toll the time period between April and December, essentially giving you a nine-month extension on the substantial improvement period. And I personally have had clients that that's found that to be very helpful right now. So there was three other things that the notice did. Um, one is, depending on how you make an investment, how a fund is structured, it might have two tiers. So a qualified opportunity fund can invest directly in property or can invest in a business. And most funds use this two-tiered structure because it actually provides additional flexibility in terms of meeting some of these tests at the expense of imposing other tests. And, and some of those other tests um, entail looking at what your assets are and whether or not um, cash is held as working capital and whether or not you meet this safe harbor test. So this test was in place prior to COVID, and it gave you 31 months or 62 months, depending on the facts and circumstances, to make an investment. There, like I said, this there was audit. This was one of those things where there was an automatic extension built into the code, if in fact, or the regulations, if in fact it, there was a disaster area declared, they yeah. give you an additional 24 months. But like I said, we were really uncertain whether that would apply because it wasn't a disaster that was declared. It was an emergency. Um, so, you know, the Treasury did come in and say, in fact, we're going to recognize that as a circumstance in which that additional 24 months would apply. And then there was also, you know, along the same line, there was an additional time period put in. So, so the idea, you know, you've got to hold to get one of the tax benefits under the program, you've got to hold the investment for 10 years, um, but you're not always going to hold the exact same investment. So a fund might invest in a business or in property and there's a distribution or a disposition of that asset. Generally, it's got 12 months to reinvest that. And that also gets extended for an additional 12 months if there's a federal disaster declared. But again, we weren't sure that that was going to apply and Treasury said, you know, if in fact the date where the emergency was declared, which was January 20th of 2020, um, if you that your 12 month reinvestment period had started around before that time, then you were going to get an additional 12 months automatically. 
Yeah. So, Julie, in your opinion, where do we go from here? I mean, it sounds like there's been some regulation to try to kind of, you know, basically, you know, save this program and, you know, make it a little more palatable for the folks who are investing a lot of dollars towards it. Do you feel that that's enough? There's a lot of conversation from a policy perspective uh, where this program should go. And I've seen this before. I've worked with New Market Tax Credits, which has a lot of similar incentives. I, I think that the program is, you know, there's been a lot of focus on very specific rules about how the program should work. And now I think the focus is shifting to how should it work from a policy perspective beyond the, the code and the regs. So, you know, the program is designed to help people in low-income communities. Is it really effective at doing that? There's been a lot of people talking about should you be able, should you be required to prove that you are making some type of investment that benefits this community as a whole in order to get the tax benefit? Should you have to report what benefits have occurred? Should you have to um, ensure that those benefits are going to occur? So right. there's a lot of focus right now on policy and reporting and, you know, what your goals are. And I've seen that in new markets. When, when we first, when that code section was first enacted, it was fairly uh, liberal what would qualify. And then certain things were put in place to make the program more competitive and more dependent upon uh, a party participating in it to actually prove that there were community benefits that that were going to come out of these types of investments. And, you know, we'll see with it. Obviously, it's an election year. I, you know, we'll see. I think the Biden tax program that I've looked at looks like with respect to this program, it is going to focus a lot more on the community benefits and I think even if we're, you know, this is a bipartisan program, I think even if we end up in a Trump administration, there's still going to be a more focus on this this area. So, so Julie, you've worked with, um, uh, you know, as you said in your introduction, you've worked for the, uh, you know, Internal Revenue Service, you've, you've worked um, on some of these, you know, you know, policy kind of programs in the past. Um, you, you, you've seen a lot of it, you know, happen, um, you know, throughout your your career. Um, and at the same time, you know, you and I know that, you know, real estate is probably akin to planting a forest, right? It sort of takes, <laughs> it takes a while for us to really kind of um, see how this is all going to turn out from from your kind of sense and your understanding of of those things with your background. How hopeful are you for this program, and what what does its future hold in your in your mind? I'm hopeful that it's going to survive. Whoever wins the next election, I think, like I said, there's bipartisan support of this program, um, and I think it's going to be you know how it might be shaped in the future. Either way, there's going to be more of a focus on the, the real purpose behind the program, and that is to provide a real benefit to distressed areas. I think with COVID, inevitably, that's going to become more important. Policymakers are going to be more focused on that and making sure that this program isn't just a disguised tax shelter. Going forward, 
one of the things that might happen is an increase in tax rates. And so at the investor level, how interested are you in this program if that's inevitable? So if you're in a situation right now, like I said, where tax rates are low and you think they're going to go up and this is just going to defer them until 2026, you know, you're going to have to do some projections and do the math. It might not make sense. Once rates do go up, well, then perhaps you have more of an incentive to take advantage of this type of program because if rates have already gone up, who knows what what's going to happen until 2026. So you might still have an incentive. You might have more of an incentive to invest in the program just under the time deferral money, even if you think rates are going to stay the same if they're relatively high when you realize gains from a capital asset that you want to uh, invest in a qualified opportunity fund. In terms of the economy, I mean, one of the benefits of the program is that you defer taxes until 2026, and then you don't pay taxes on the appreciation of that your investment in that fund when you dispose of it 10 years or more later. So you don't have to d- dispose of it in 10 years, but I think most projections assume you will dispose of it around that time. Sure. If the economy is stalled, maybe there's not going to be a lot of appreciation when you're looking at that projection. But you do actually have until 2047 to dispose of your interest in a qualified opportunity fund. So if you're in it for the long haul, that might not, you know, the current state of the economy might not prevent you from making an investment in a qualified opportunity fund. Great. Well, Julie, thank you very much for your time. Stay safe. Thank you. You too.